0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Ka'urna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 1st of March 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible. And as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month, we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers, and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very well, thanks, Ian. And it's great to be speaking with you again. So can you tell us, mate, what's up in the sky
1: for the month of March. Okay, March, once again, has lots of things going on, but sadly, tragically, the vast majority of them occurring in the morning. So you have to get up early to see the Penelope of uh, of sky delights. So we've got five bright planets in the sky uh, in in March, which is rather nice. We've got uh, Venus, Mars, Mercury, and Saturn. And Jupiter does turn up later on, but it's quite late in the month. Again, unfortunately, this is all occurring in the early morning. So you have to get up around about at least an hour before sunrise, maybe an hour and a half before sunrise to really see what's going on. Let's start off with the Moon, as I always do. So the new Moon is on March 3. This is time around the new Moon, of course, is the best to be looking at the constellations, star clusters and deep sky objects. The first quarter moon is on March the 10th. Now this is an apogee first quarter. So we've talked in previous uh, podcasts about the uh, uh, apogee and perigee full moons. That's when the moon's closest to Earth in uh, uh, perigee and furthest away in apogee. The perigee full moons are sometimes called super moons, even though no, they're, they're not that super. And if you've got a good eye for the moon, you can see that the perigee moons are bigger than the apogee moons. This year will be a quite nice apogee and perigee first quarter moon. So if you look on March the 10th and take some images, then uh, later on in the month when you've got the perigee full moon, take some more images and compare them, you'll find a quite pleasing size contrast and be able to see the details of the craters a lot better. But anyway, moving on from that, the full moon is on March the 18th and the last quarter is on March the 25th. So again, the apogee is March 11th, corresponding to the first quarter, and perigee is on March 24th. So the other interesting thing that happened is that Earth is at equinox on the 21st. So this is when the uh, day and night are equal length. And you may not know this, but uh, equinox is the best time to see the zodiacal light. Now, I'm betting uh, most of our listeners have actually not seen the zodiacal light. This uh, thin, pale triangle of light that you can see uh, before dawn is called by dust in the plane of the solar system um, reflecting sunlight. And it's best seen on the nights close to the new moon, close to the equinox. And, And why that's so is because the equinox is when The plane of the ecliptic is almost straight up and down and so this you've got the best opportunity to see the light coming up above the horizon of course at other times it's going to be uh, closer to parallel to the horizon because of the uh, uh, ecliptic and you'll uh, lose the thin the zodiacal light which is quite pale in the dust and murk of the horizon. Now, of course, because it's quite pale, you'll see it best see it from uh, proper dark sky sites, suburban sky sites, not very likely. But if you're out in the bush or far away from the lights of civilization and around about equinox, it's a good time to see the zodiac light. Now, from the southern hemisphere, uh, for us, it's best to be seen in the morning before sunrise. So you've got to be looking east. And the best time, as I said, the best time is uh, new moon around the uh, equinox. But unfortunately, uh, closest to the equinox is um, uh, is so you've got the uh, last quarter moon. So you'll be having a significant amount of light coming from the last quarter moon. So you're probably best looking from March the first to March the tenth. That's new moon to first quarter. So Around New Moon, you've got no Moon in the sky. First quarter, the Moon's setting uh, long before astronomical twilight. So this is a very good uh, time to get up, have a look uh, to the east and see if you can see the pale wedge of of the zodiacal light in the eastern sky. Excellent. So... As I said, the evening sky is devoid of bright planets at the moment, but in the last podcast, I shared the indigenous names from the uh, Kolkata peoples for Orion, and these are from the uh, Western Desert of South Australia. So if you can remember from last time, we have uh, the hunter, Niruna, uh, he's Orion, and he's p- p- pursuing the uh, Ugalaria sisters, and these are the Pallades every night. Now, Niruna is prevented from reaching the sisters by uh, Kambugada, who's the uh, eldest sister. She plants himself boldly in, her, in his path, preventing him from reaching the sisters. Now, the club in Niruna's right hand uh, fills with magic fire, ready to throw at uh, Kambuguda. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the, uh, the, club, the club filled with magic fire is Beetlejuice, as we know it. However, she defensively lifts her left foot, which is also filled with magic fire. There's the star Oliver, which causes a great humiliation and puts out the fire in his arm. Now, this uh, occurs in a cycle where uh, Neruna's clubbed fire comes back. He uh, threatens uh, Kanagooda again. Her fire comes back. His goes out again. And she sticks some uh, dingo puppies on him. The dingo puppies... Uh, uh, the line of stars, which we call the Shield of Orion. Now, aside from this being a rather dramatic nighttime story, it may represent uh, indigenous observations of the variability of Betelgeuse. Now, remember Betelgeuse yep. back in 2020 when it uh, had dimmed greatly. Uh, so Betelgeuse is a is a variable a, a, a star. It's, it's semi-regular uh, and if you are a keen observer watching over the course of the year, you can see the dim and brighten. And now we got very excited in 2020 because it had dimmed significantly, the, the dimmest it had been in uh, this century. But you may be interested to know it, it's currently at 120% of its normal brightness. So the fire in Miruna's uh, club, uh, dimming and brightening may represent uh, uh, indigenous observation of the uh, variability of Betelgeuse, bored into a story. Now, Aldebaran, which also uh, in the story uh, brightens and fades, is also a variable star, but its degree of variability is quite uh, much smaller than that of Betelgeuse and also occurs over quite a quiet period of time, so it may be quite difficult for an unaided eye observer to see the variability of Betelgeuse. The flaring and, and dimming of, of Aldebaran may have be been incorporated into the story simply to provide an exciting storyline to go with the brightening and dimming of the club. It might also represent other astronomical phenomena associated with its low position on the horizon. Or it may have been that uh, Aboriginal observers were uh, really keen-eyed observers of the sky and were able to see this uh, variability. But that's uh, very interesting. So when you look at the the, uh, sky, when you look at Orion, you you, you know that there are multiple stories in the the sky from both our traditions and Indigenous traditions the world over. But this is probably the most exciting one that I've come across uh, filled with fire magic.
0: Fantastic.
1: So, of course, now while this drama is playing out in the north, to the south, we have uh, much calmer um, things happening. We've got uh, Wilto, the Southern Cross, uh, is now well visible. And as it rises higher into the sky, along with the pointers Alpha and Beta Centauri, the magnificent globular cluster Omega Centauri is now high enough to appreciate. So, it's visible to the unaided eye as a fuzzy dot. And it's a fuzzy ball in binoculars. And even in the small telescope, you begin to tease out the magnificent uh, uh, star city that is the uh, globular cluster. And it, like, as I said, this is the, the best globular cluster in the sky. To my mind, of course, the second best globular cluster is 47 Tucana in the small Magellanic Cloud. Now, the small Magellanic cloud is beginning to sink towards the horizon. But if you look due south and well up, just a little bit over to, uh, from due south is the large Magellanic cloud. But if you look to slightly uh, down and to the west of the large Magellanic cloud, you'll see the small Magellanic cloud uh, as a patch of nebulosity. And in that small patch of nebulosity is a fuzzy dot, which is the globular cluster 47 Ducana, again looking really good, and even in binoculars uh, and small telescopes, brings out the uh, magnificent detail of this uh, globular cluster. If you sweep up from the Southern Cross towards the centre of the horizon, there's so many objects uh, there. You've got the, just even with your unaided eye, you can see uh, the fuzziness of the sky from all the, the clusters and they look really good in binoculars, but I won't go into any detail at the moment. Um, Now, of course, as I said, all the action is in the morning sky in in terms of planets. So um, Mercury is still readily visible in the morning twilight until about mid-month. So it's it's, uh, really uh, relatively easy to see, but it becomes harder and harder to see as the month goes on. Around about the end of the month, uh, you will probably need binoculars to see it. But at the start of the month, Mercury is below the pair of Venus and Mars and just above Saturn. Uh, and then on the third, Saturn and Mercury are very close. They're uh, 0.7 of a degree apart, less than uh, a finger width apart, and they can be seen together in uh, medium-power telescope eyepieces. You probably won't see much detail in Saturn's rings. Uh, but and, and Mercury will look like a... Uh, a tiny dot, but the fact that you can see them together in, in uh, the telescope could be quite fun to watch. Excellent. Over the month, Mercury is going to continue to, to sink, uh, and on the 21st and 22nd, Mercury and Jupiter are close lower the twilight, as Jupiter begins to rise out of the twilight glow. Uh, it's not going to be as spectacular as the Saturn-Mercury um, conjunction uh, they'll be within a binocular field of each other. And again, um, you may need the binoculars anyway to be able to see Mercury because they'll be quite low to the horizon. You'll have to look at half an hour before sunrise to see the pair. Now, as I said, Venus and Mercury form a pair in the twilight and uh, well, you can, you can easily see them well before astronomical twilight. So they're, they're really quite easy to see. Astronomical twilight is an hour and a half before sunrise, when the sky is still fully dark. Uh, nautical twilight, the sky is beginning to pale, and that's an hour before sunrise. And civil twilight, uh, the sky is quite bright, and that's half an hour before sunrise. But uh, Venus, Venus is uh, uh, quite easy to see. It's high in the uh, eastern morning twilight and uh, readily visible an hour before sunrise just below Mars. So as I said, they, they're forming a pair. I've said that several times now, but they're going to come slowly closer over the month. And uh, the pair will be closest on the 16th of March with about four degrees apart. That's less than a hand span and uh, a binocular afi- uh, field apart for 10 by 50 binoculars. So that will look quite nice. And then they start, start drawing apart again as Venus approaches Saturn. So Saturn comes closer um, towards the uh, uh, mid to middle of month. And on the 28th, the thin crescent moon, Mars and Venus form a line with Saturn to the side of Venus. On the 29th, Saturn and Venus are at their closest with the thin crescent moon, Mars, uh, Venus and Saturn forming a triangle. Again, we've got lots of these planetary masses that are are happening, they're really cool and, and groovy. You don't need any fancy equipment to see them uh, they'll be uh, readily visible. So Venus is about, it's, it's still a crescent first quarter shape in telescopes at the beginning of the month and will uh, wax as the month progresses uh, to be uh, a, bit, a bit over a half moon shape by the end of the month. Now the Parker Solar Probe recently made a, a close approach to Venus. And one of the uh, astonishing things was it was able to see surface features on Venus. Now, normally, Venus is covered in thick cloud, but the Parker Solar Probe was taking photographs of its night side, and what they were seeing was the infrared glow of the surface features shining through the cloud. And it might be interesting for people who have infrared filters and their telescopes to see if they could pick up surface features on Venus's dark side. Now, this is going to be quite difficult because the brightness of the, of the bright side of Venus will almost completely drown out the dark side unless you do something to block out the light. If you're a dedicated amateur, you might like to create an occulting disk and occult the, uh, the bright part of Venus. So you could just start imaging the dark, the dark side. Uh, Now, people have used occulting disks before, typically to block out the light of Mars so they can image the Martian moons, but I've never seen anybody who's built a occulting device for Venus, Uh, and it would be a very interesting research project to try and build uh, a lens with an occulting disk in it, uh, in order to see if you can pick up the uh, glow of Venus's uh, surface features through the clouds. Uh, so if anyone's interested in that, maybe they can put together uh, a, a little project and uh, let me know how it goes.
0: Fantastic. That sounds like quite a challenge Ian. and it, they, it is They can contact you via your website at Astroblogger.
1: Yes, they can and I'll see, I'll see if I can dig up the stuff I, I have on uh, occulting disks for Mars and see if we can and see if we can find some more detail. Anyway, well, that brings us back to Mars. Now, Mars is, uh, is even higher than the sky March. And of course, uh, I'll say yet again, Mars makes an attractive triangle with Venus and Mercury at the beginning of the month. And now, Mars is away from the teapot uh, of Sagittarius. Uh, you can identify it by first finding bright white Venus. And then looking up a bit and the orange, the bright orange object above Venus is Mars. And the bright orange object is Mars. And over the month, Mars will slowly brighten, but it's always outshone by brilliant Venus.
0: Venus is looking magnificent at the moment and visible for a while after dawn. You've given us a few tangents, and You've told us about getting a a possible view of a zodiacal light. You've told us about the variability of Indigenous observations of Betelgeuse and the Parker Solar Probe getting under the clouds of Venus. Do you have an official tangent for this month? Oh, yes, I do.
1: Now, do you remember our last two tangents in our podcast? The theme of the last two uh, t- uh, tangents has been the naming of names. Uh, with the very first one, we, we were talking about whether moon should be called planets, and again, the big debate over whether Pluto should be a planet or a dwarf planet coming and going, and uh, thinking about planets, what, what, what really defines a planet. And then our, in the podcast just gone, we talked about whether you could name a star or a planet. For a fee, the answer, of course, is no. But I'd like to continue this theme with naming of names. So the naming of planets is a tricky thing, as we've seen, because we have to accommodate uh, objects that range from uh, overgrown gravel to failed stars. And as I said, the argy-bargy around war planets convince you that naming of names is not straightforward. But at least in the solar system, we can uh, actually see these objects or suitable definitions of the word see. So, what about worlds around other stars, the exoplanets? How is the naming of names going on with them? Now, the first planets, excluding the pulsar planets, which I'll talk about later, were enormous. These were giant things that rushed around their stars in a blazingly short time, and typically uh, so much closer to their stars than our planets are to our stars. Now, of course, we can't actually see them, uh, with a couple of, ex- uh, of exceptions. But we infer their existence from dips in light as they move in front of our sun, or the Doppler shift we see as they tug on their sun, and of course, gravitational lensing. So when we first uh, saw these uh, things, we uh, typically saw really, really huge things, because of course, it's much easier to see a big dip in the the light of a star caused by a big planet than there is to see a small dip caused by a smaller planet. So naturally, these things were called super jupiters or hot jupiters yes strangely super hot jupiters have never uh, has never been used as a name you can see it's descriptive uh, where it's bringing into an object we know uh, jupiter and getting it uh, a modifier so that we know it's bigger than jupiter or it's hotter than jupiter now these are much more descriptive than something like big chunky boy yep So anyway, as time got on, we discovered more and more exoplanets. So we actually now see that these hot Jupiters or super Jupiters are actually quite relatively rare compared to the the other uh, kinds of planets. So now we begin to see things that more like the planets we are familiar with. So there's terrestrial sized planets for a suitable definition of terrestrial size. Uranus-neptune sized planets, which we call ice giants. Jupiter and Saturn sized planets, which are called gas giants. In fact, there's even one super Saturn uh, where we've discovered uh, a a planet, which is a couple of uh, Jupiters in size, which has an extended ring system. So, but also there's a a couple of types uh, of planet types we don't see uh, in our solar system, as well as the aforementioned super Jupiters, There are also super-Earths and mini-Neptunes. And again, if you look at the the size distribution of these things, remember I talked about everything from uh, uh, overgrown gravel to um, failed stars, we see that the the, the planets tend to chunk in a group of sizes. So we have a bunch of sizes around about Earth size and a bunch of sizes around about the mini-Neptunes. But between uh, 1.6 times, two times the size of Earth, there's a gap. So we see super-Earths up to about 1.6 and then from about uh, two times further up into the mini-Neptunes. So what's going on here? Why is there a gap? Uh, We're not entirely clear. It may be that once a proto-Neptune starts growing, it'll continue. You will not stop until it reaches Neptune size. Or it could be that the Neptune sizes lose their atmospheres in some way. Some of the super-Earths, in fact, may be cores of many Neptunes or even super-Jupiters that have lost their atmosphere by having it uh, boiled away by the sun. Uh, and in fact, there's, uh, we, we know that there are uh, a couple of planets that are being disintegrating as we speak as they're too close to their sun. Now, the discovery of a third planet around our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, adds a new member to the lineup. Now, Proxima Centauri D exoplanets, when they discovered, are the named with the name of the star, and then B, C, D, E, etc. For some reason, they don't want to have, they don't want to use the acronym A because that's usually for a double star. So, Proxima Centauri D. Is a small rocky world orbiting close to its red dwarf sun. Proxima Centauri B is what I've got really excited about because it's a temperate terrestrial style, style world, and Proxima Centauri C is probably an ice world, whether it's an, uh, an icy super Earth or a sub uh, or a mini Neptune is not quite clear at the moment. So back to the naming of names. Proxima Centauri D has been termed a hot super Mars rather than a hot mini-Earth. Why? Why uh, we prefer super to mini-Earth negative? So why not super-Mercury or sub-Venus? <laughs> so a, a, a super-Mercury would, would automatically give the idea of a small, hot world. Now, Proxima Centauri d is not the first exoplanet in the more or less Mars-sized category. In fact, there's nearly 20 in that category. But no one's felt the need to call them anything other than a small exoplanet so far. So this is the first super Mars that's turned up. So do we really need a super Mars category? Why not? We've got super Earths. Why not super Mars? Mars but why not make, make them after something else? Why not super Mercury's or the name I, I prefer, which is MaxiCuries. And then there are a whole bunch of things that are much smaller than Proxima Centauri D and Mars. For example, there's Kepler 37b, which is larger than the moon and smaller than Mars. This is not, a, uh, not the only mini theory. there are quite a few others. However, most of these are planets in the process of disintegrating as they are close to their sun, which I've mentioned before. And one of these is a the famous pulsar planet. Pulsar planets were actually the first exoplanets discovered. But initially, everyone thought that they were illusions. Because the whole thing about a pulsar, it's the corpse of an exploded star. So surely any planets would have been uh, wiped away by the process. But it turns out that in the aftermath of the explosion, uh, material coalesces and forms, uh, forms planets around these pulsars. And the pulsar planets are in the Mercury to smaller than Mercury size. I I talked about supermoons a bit earlier uh, in terms of uh, super perigee and apogee moon, but there's an example of a real supermoon. Finding moons around exoplanets is pretty hard. I mean, finding exoplanets is hard enough, but finding moons around them is exponentially harder. However, we've got at least one potential supermoon. This is a Neptune-sized moon, Orbiting a Jupiter-sized planet, Kepler 1625b. So the planet's a bit bigger than Jupiter, but uh, a Neptune-sized moon. Eh, it's, I think, that fits the definition of a supermoon. Yep. So be it sub or mini. The naming of names is going to be as contentious as the planet dwarf, planet uh, split. But I, for one, am throwing my hat into the ring for mini Curie and maxi Curie for worlds smaller
0: than Earth. Well, I, I think in the in the coming months, Ian, when the James Webb Space Telescope comes online, uh, we're going to see a lot of accidental findings of uh, exomoons, exoplanets, and who knows what else.
1: I'm not sure it's going to be so so accidental. Uh, have you seen the, the images of the of, uh, the James Webbers are beginning to focus uh, focus the mirror and go from these large hexagonal blobs to smaller hexagonal blobs. And now they're, they're, they're looking like stars. It's absolutely brilliant. I cannot wait. No matter what we find out there, it's going to be an explosion of knowledge, and I just can't wait to see that.
0: Well, all of that data is going to become public and there'll be so much data coming down that there'll be ordinary members of the public you know keen astronomers who grab a bit of data and find things that others haven't it's going to be pretty amazing
1: yeah well I think that's a very good point and maybe I should use that as a tangent about how you can go through existing data sets and find new things and uh, there's been a couple of examples quite recently
0: fantastic well thank you very much. In Astroblog Musgrave, another wonderful episode of what to see in the sky for the next month and all of those beautiful tangents.
1: Thank you very much, Freeman. It's a pleasure. Uh, catch you next month. See ya.
0: And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandel at SpaceAustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. And in two weeks' time we have a phenomenal interview for you with Associate Professor Duane Harmarker who has written an amazing book in collaboration with Indigenous Elders and Knowledge Holders. The book is called The First Astronomers, How Indigenous Elders Read the Stars. Pre-orders are available now. We'll see you in two weeks.